Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yeah. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Michael Thompson was when I was in junior high and high school was my hero, and I ended up playing at Minnesota with his brother Andy. And there's some there's an interesting Andy Thompson last dance coincidence too, by the way. Michael Thompson's brother, of course, Michael Thompson's Clay Thompson's father, mm-hmm. and and Michael's brother Andy is the one that that his idea was uh, the last dance. It was his idea to, to film Jordan that last year. So Mike, people don't know about they know Clay and they might know Michael, but they don't know about Andy. Today's podcast is brought to you by New Works Plumbing of Sacramento, locally owned for over 20 years, whether it's leak detection, water line repair, bathroom plumbing, New Works Plumbing is a full-service plumbing solution. No matter how small or how large your plumbing problem, they've got a fix for you. And their expert technicians are available 24-7 for all of your plumbing needs. Just go to newworksplumbing.com. That's N-E-W-W-R-X plumbing.com. My guest began his NBA career with the Houston Rockets, had a quick stop in Sacramento, ended his career with the Golden State Warriors. He's been a coach in the WNBA, longtime analyst with the Minnesota Timberwolves. It's an absolute pleasure to welcome to the show Jim Peterson. Jim, how are you? Good, Grant. Hey, don't forget about the Big Ten Championship that we won in 1982. Yeah. We're going to get to all of that. Trust me. We're going to get to all of that. You know, what I wanted to start with first, you're coming up on your one-year anniversary of heart bypass surgery. I know you suffered your first heart attack back in 2010. What's the one thing that you've learned that you like to pass on going through heart disease for the last 11 or 12 years? That's a great question. You know, I've learned a lot. I think that, you know, being an athlete, it, it, it wasn't conducive to me probably listening to doctors as much as I probably should have. And so the funny thing was, is that, well, it's not, none of this is really funny, but the day that I had my heart attack in 2010, Grant, it was on a, it was on a game day. You know, I've been, a, I've been the TV analyst for the Timberwolves and a radio analyst as well since 1998. So the lockout season of 98 is when I started broadcasting. And so, you know, we're doing a game. I'm doing a game with the great Tom Hanneman, the late great Tom Hanneman. And it was on a, it was the day before Thanksgiving. And uh, we were playing the San Antonio Spurs. And I went to shoot around. And I went to the, go- I went to the grocery store because I was getting, picking up some stuff for Thanksgiving. We were having people at our house. And I started feeling like kind of heartburnish feeling, you know. And a level one pain as I got home turned into a level two. And it kind of kept on escalating. And so I'm sitting there prepping for the game. I'm like on the sofa kind of prepping for the game. And I'm, you know, looking up stats and doing my stat sheet and all those things, all the things that we do, you know. And all of a sudden, you know, I kind of started sweating and I didn't, I wasn't feeling great. And I was like, you know, if this starts getting any worse, I'm not going to be able to do this game tonight. I just don't, I can't see myself working if I feel like I feel right now. And so then my chest started hurting more and I, and I called our team doctor, Sheldon Burns, and Sheldon is just the most amazing guy. You know how these team doctors are great. Sure. They just so great. They great do a great job of taking care of us. I, I I called Sheldon and I just told him what I was feeling, and he said, "Jim, you're having a heart attack. Call nine one one." And I was like, "And so I'm, you know, this is you know, 2010. So I'm 48 years old. I'm 48, and I'm in good shape. I'm a former NBA player. I I work out. I I'm in, I'm in. Yeah, you know, I eat I eat well." 
and my doctor's telling me that I'm having a heart attack and I should call my wife. As I show I'm not calling 911 for heartburn. And he's like, I'm telling you, you're having a heart attack. I was like, well, I'll just drive myself to the hospital. He goes, no, don't do that. Just call 911. So I did. And 911 tells you, they say, take two aspirin, open the front door of your house and, and sit up straight. Don't lay down. So I do. I take two aspirin, open up the front door. You know, obviously they do that in case something happens, you pass out or whatever. They don't want to, have to bust your door in. And I called nine one one. They're at my house in about six minutes. Wow. They 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 take my vitals. They said, "Yep, in fact, this is what's going on." So they gave me some nitro. They stick me in the ambulance. I go to the I go to the emergency room. And the reason why you call nine one one, Grant, versus driving yourself to the hospital is because they're doing triage. They're, the ambulance is bringing you, they're prepping the, the surgery, the surgical room. So they, they did angioplasty on me right, like right when I got into the hospital, they right into the emergency room, right into the operating room. And I'm having the blockage knocked away. And the doctor that's, that's working on me, I, I said, doc, I cannot believe I'm on this table right now. I cannot believe I'm here. And she said, you should see the marathoners when they come in here. <laughs> you know, with, and so like, you know, there are people like, like she's saying like literally like marathoners have, have heart attacks too. And they're in that room and they can't believe it either. So from phone call to nine one one to I'm in my room, Grant was like under an hour. It was the most unbelievable, like from a logistical standpoint, from, from phone call, Hey, I'm having a heart attack to I'm in the ambulance in the room, blockage is knocked away. And I'm in my, I'm in my hospital room it was an hour. Hmm. It was unbelievable, you know, and then I, I got to tell you that I, I really kind of felt like it was a fluke thing. I didn't take my medication like I should have, and I ended up having other instances where I had stents put. I had eight total stents put in my heart from 2010 up until last summer, and then, um, you know, so the heart disease is real. It, it, you know, the part of it that is hereditary, like my dad had it. My, my mom had a heart attack as well, but my dad had more coronary heart disease problems than my mom did, but I just—it's. I think it's just super important to stay vigilant, and also, you know, if you if you are feeling any of those symptoms, to not wait. Like the other times I had other occurrences where I had to have stents placed. You know, I had I was having chest pain too, and so many people ignore it, Grant. So that's what I would say. I would say, you know, obviously, you know, diet and exercise matter. You can't you can't minimize that. But when you're when you're also feeling something that isn't right, don't wait. And then the other part of it for me was when you go into a hospital, and there've been a couple there've been a couple instances. And I'm trying to remember the coach of the Minnesota Vikings who passed away a couple of years ago. He had gone to Fairview Southdale. He had he had had chest pain. He he had gone, and then they released him. They all they did was was like a blood test. They really didn't do the proper testing. You've got to have an angio. The only way to really determine whether you've had any kind of heart situation, if you've got a blockage, is to do an angiogram. You have to do an angiogram. So don't let the doctors not give you an angio. If you're having chest pain, you think there's something wrong, you have to get an angiogram. So like that's the most like that that's the best advice I can give you, you know, and then also just take your medication. But you know, I appreciate you asking. So I think that it's important. I think that people that if you know of our age group grant things happen. And I think a lot of people they 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 ignore the telltale signs of something's going on and, and you, you can't do that. Had the doctor, the team doctor not answered his phone that day, had you waited and not called 911, do you think you would have ever made it to the hospital? I mean, you must think about that. Yeah, I do. I do. And that's one of the things that, you know, that's why these team docs are so incredible. You know, we have their number. And, you know, and, and Sheldon Burns, you know, I, I've been with the Timberwolves since 1998. So I've known Sheldon. He's, our, he's my, my physician. I go and see him for checkups and other things. Um, <clears throat> I've called Sheldon over the years for other things. And we all have these experiences. Sheldon is also the, the team doctor for the Vikings in the Minnesota Wild. And he's, he's got his own cases. I've never, like Sheldon Burns has answered his phone every time I've ever called him. Mm. I've probably called Sheldon like for other things grant probably 12 times he's never not answered i mean that's just an amazing like wow. and, and if you talk to other people in the organization they say the same thing i don't know how this guy can answer his phone as much as he <laughs> be a doctor right i mean it's, sure. it's insane but so i'm so i i think about that all the time grant what if what if what if 
Sheldon doesn't answer his phone. It was the right coronary coronary artery, which is not the Widowmaker. The Widowmaker is the left coronary, descending coronary arteries. That that's the one that, if you get 100% blockage, you 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 basically it's a you know you drop dead basically. And so mine was the right coronary artery. So I, there could have been more damage done. The, the, the fact that I was able to get treatment so quickly, there was no mm. damage to my heart. And that's the thing that I think about is that Sheldon really saved me from from that. So, yeah. So I, 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 every time I see him, I thank him. And you know, I say, you saved my life. And also the, the first responders and the guys that came to my house, the, the guys that were the paramedics, they are the paramedics that work at target center for Timberwolves games who are there. Like, and they, they came in, they knew who I was and they're like, Jim, like, you know, we, we work the games. And I'm like, what? Wow. And so yeah. How about that? How about that coincidence? Um, unbelievable. Yeah. Let's go back yeah. to your basketball career now. You yeah. were really close to going to Duke. For those that don't know, you went to Minnesota and played for the Gophers, and you were talking about your Big 12 championship, but how close really were you to going to play for Mike Krzyzewski at Duke? Well, you know, when I was in college, excuse me, when I was in high school, you know, my idols growing up, Jim Brewer was a former NBA player, played was in the early 70s, and then Michael Thompson, Mark Oberdang, Kevin McHale, Ray Williams, all these great players were right before so those are the guys I, I watched growing up I wore 43 in the NBA because of Michael Thompson Michael Thompson was when I was in junior high and high school was my was my hero and I ended up playing at Minnesota with his brother Andy and there's some there's an interesting Andy Thompson last dance coincidence too by the way Michael Thompson's brother of course Michael Thompson's Clay Thompson's father mm-hmm. right and and Michael's brother Andy is the one that that his idea was uh, the last dance. It was his idea to, to film Jordan that last year. So Michael, people don't know about they know Clay and they might know Michael. But they don't know about Andy. And Andy mm-hmm. is the one that came up with the last dance. We were teammates at the University of Minnesota. When I was in high school, for some reason, I just got my imagination captured by the '78 Duke team that lost to Kentucky. Mike Jaminski, Gene Banks, Jim Spinarkle, and I don't know what it was about the uniforms. It was something about that team. It was something about Gene Banks. I really admired him too. And so when I was being recruited, I, I was recruited by everybody. I was a McDonald's All-American. And so I, when I visited Duke's campus, I was like, this place is unbelievable. You know, the, the Cameron Indoor wasn't, wasn't, didn't have the allure that it does now, but it was still this incredible gym and, and the campus was fantastic. And I really liked Mike Jaminski and, and Gene Banks and Kenny Denard and that guys that were on that team. And there's another guy who you might remember, Chip England, who was the shooting coach for the San Antonio Spurs. Mm-hmm. If you if you know anything about the Spurs, yes. you know Chip England. So Chip Chip was on that team as well. And so Bill Foster was the head coach. I I, I really love Bill Foster. The other guy that were, that was on the staff, a guy named Terry Chili, who's he's been my he's my friend. We've been friends ever since. We still talk and see each other all the time. Great guy. I committed to Duke. I was I was 100% in, and I I was excited about my decision. You know, I think there were a lot of people that were saying I was kind of a a turncoat to turn down the University of Minnesota because it's my hometown team. But there just was something to tell me about going to Duke. And so, spring quarter of my senior year in high school, this guy named Shashevsky comes in. Bill Foster leaves and goes to South Carolina. And this guy named Shashevsky comes in, and, and I don't know anything about him other than he's a Bobby Knight disciple from West Point. That, that's where that's where like Shashevsky came from, and this is 1980. So think about that. That's how long Coach K has been at Duke right. University. He's right. been at Duke since 1980. <laughs> sure. Okay. And think about all the guys that have come and gone. I, I'm I'm 59 years old. So, I mean, that's just an amazing run. But anyway, I, I grant I it's it's one of the only decisions in basketball that I regret. I you know, and I'm not even sure I even really regret it because things still worked out for me. But I Mike Shashevsky, it had to have been one of the first things he did. So this was. I'm getting ready to go to the McDonald's All-American game the next day. He had scheduled a time to come up and see me to ask me to still commit to, you know, to follow up my commitment to Duke. And so I met him at this hotel near the airport in Minneapolis. And it's gone now because it's where the Mall of America is now. It's, it's where the Mall of America is. It was called the Thunderbird Hotel. Hmm. It was like this Indian motif, Native American, Indian 
motif hotel. It was classic, right? By, and that's where Met Stadium used to be, where the Vikings and Twins used to play before the Metrodome. And so I, I go and I drive out to the Thunderbird Hotel by myself. My parents did not come with me. I'm an 18-year-old kid going out to meet Mike Krzyzewski at the Thunderbird Hotel. <laughs> oh, wow. And so I, I go to, I go to, you know, up to his room, whatever room it was. And yeah, that's my, that's my, one of my claims. Oh my gosh. I, I, I broke up with coach K at the Thunderbird hotel. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. That's unbelievable. Wow. What a story that is. And you know, the rest is history. As they say, it worked out very well for you uh, playing with the Minnesota Gophers. And then you end up, as a what third round draft pick of the Rockets and you find yourself practicing against Hakeem Olajuwon and Ralph Sampson. What was that like for you? It was a, it was a mind bender. I mean, as you can imagine, I mean, the whole thing's a whirlwind, you know, when you're really not expected to make it, I was a, I was a good college basketball player. I was not a great college basketball player. And I don't think anybody at, at, who watched me play at the university of Minnesota felt like I was, I was good enough to play, you know, and I, and I, I meant to ask Bobby Jackson this and, and, you know, one of the greatest commercials I've ever seen was a Bobby Jackson commercial, Grant. It's when he first got in the league. He was, he was I think he was playing for Denver. Yes, Denver. Um, when he first got in the league. So it was before he came to Minnesota. It was an Adidas commercial. Bobby, Bobby Jackson was at center court, and he was lit like a boxing ring, right? And he's dribbling towards the basket. And all you see is the, the, the light follow him as he's dribbling to the basket but in the background you see all these people that are are on either side of of the hoop you know hundreds and hundreds of people right that are that are back they're they're back that they're dark but you can see that they're there and bobby jackson's dribbling and he's dribbling to go make a layup and the commercial is about like all the people that it takes to get a player to the nba like you don't do it by yourself sure right and so, you know, that was the thing for me is like, is like, you know, no one gets to the NBA by themselves. And I, and I think about that all the time, but all the people that helped me. And when no one believed in me, there were people that still believed in me and that knew that I could make it. So that when I got to Houston, I, you know, I, did, I really was super like confident that I could do it. Like I, I felt like I, even though no one else felt like I could, there were, there were, you know, probably 20, 30 people that helped me get there. And once I got to Houston, I, I just played well, you know, starting, you know, before Vegas, back in those days, there were only 23 teams in the NBA and there was no Vegas summer league. They had the Midwest rookie review was Houston, Dallas, San Antonio, and Denver. It was still, it was the Midwest division. Right. And I think the Utah jazz as well. So we, we had those five teams playing in San Antonio. When I went down to San Antonio and I played, I played really well. And as we're driving back, this was in July or whatever. So as we're, as we're finishing it, we're, we're busting back to Houston. Bill Fitch calls me up to the front seat of the bus with him. And he said, look, we're going to give you a guaranteed contract. We're going to, we're going to sign you and we're going to give you a guaranteed, a, guarantee, a one-year guarantee. And so you're going to be on the team this year. So when I went to training camp, Grant, I knew I'd already made the team. Wow. Like what, what an incredible experience that was. And you want to know what I made my first year? What's that? 85 grand. <laughs> my, my first year in the right. NBA. And you know, back in those days, if you look up the salary cap, that was like the first year of the salary cap, 84. Like they, they paid the entire team, I think with like $1.8 million. Yeah. You were the happiest guy in the world, right? Oh, I was, I was, I was so happy. 85 grand. I was like, I'd never, I could not imagine <laughs> making that much right. money. Right. But I was more, I was more excited about, about being on the team. Like I knew, I knew coming to training camp, I was going to be on the team. And so there's a level, there's a level of confidence that that brings too. But the first time you step onto the floor with Elijah and Samson, and you know, I, I hadn't played against Elijah one. I played against Samson and I mean, seven foot four freak athlete. Like it was just, it was just an incredible experience to, to, oh. to experience that, you know, and then to play against Elijah one every day, was just a, was just a, you know we became friends. You're not in awe of your friends anymore. You know what I mean? Like it's Great just point. like that's just that's just the dream. Great point. You know what I mean? Like yeah. And we and we competed. So you know, and so he taught me. Like I learned so much. I learned all of his footwork. I learned I learned how he did what he did. And it's one of the things that made me a better coach too. That like I had been around that guy. That I could I could tell people I know exactly 
how he does what he does because I was there when he was doing it. And, and, you know, this was back before player development too. Now NBA teams have, you know, 15 coaches. They have all these player development guys and all they do is you know, all the team is filled with guys that work you out and, and, and teach you technique and, and coach you up and all that stuff. We didn't have any of that. When, when I first got in the league, there was three coaches. You had, we had Bill Fitch, we had Rudy, uh, Rudy Tomjanovich and Carol Dawson. And Rudy T was, was basically an advanced scout. So he was with us every day. So you had two coaches on the bench and neither one of them were going to work you out. So we, we did, we were basically our own player development people. And I had the best player development coach. It, one of in the history of the league. I came Elijah is, is, is one of the greatest, you know, the greatest centers. If he's, if he, he's in the top five, I mean, sure, we can of course argue he is. about who's no, the he center, is. but, no question. But Elijah Juan is is saying is as is, is is was just an amazing teacher and he wasn't trying to teach me, but he did. And it wasn't it was a great experience. I remember you as a player that ran the floor very well. You were a tough physical player. You really got the most out of that hard work, blue collar ethic, if you don't mind me going down that road. Were you yeah. were you like that as a kid? I know you played hockey outdoors in the cold and football outdoors in the cold, and you've talked about your dad in the past. Is that how you were raised? Were you like that as a little kid? My dad was a truck driver. My mom was a nurse, and we, you know, like in Minnesota, you you basically play the sport whatever season it is, you know. So, and that's the, you know the age of specialization uh, wasn't really in, in 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 effect at that time. So. So, yeah, I mean, like, we just, whatever season it was, that's the sport we played. I played hockey in the wintertime, and, and I played basketball, too, obviously. But, you know, football was, was you know, my one of my favorite sports, baseball in the summertime. And it was it was pretty rough. It was pretty rough and tumble here, you know, in this in this area. So, and it was competitive. My, you know, I remember when, when I started specializing in basketball was, was I had, broken I, I got a puck in the mouth and I broke my you know two teeth and I was in I was in ninth grade and my mom was like you know you're six five um and and, and, <laughs> right. you, and you just cost as much of money by getting your teeth broken like playing hockey <laughs> I, she goes I think it's time to focus on basketball so that's that's what you know getting my teeth knocked out was what made me kind of specialize but yeah you're right I mean it, it, it did it did impact how I played you know I think that being physical it was, it was a different game back then if you think about you know, guys like Kurt Rambis, who Kurt was a very skilled college basketball player. He, he was really good at Santa Clara. Mm-hmm. But then when you start when you start playing with these great superstars, I mean, if you're playing with Magic Johnson and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and Byron Scott and Michael Cooper and James Worthy, <laughs> like like there's there's not enough basketballs to go around to give him, give it to Kurt Rambis too. Like you like to draw plays up, so you had to figure out ways to score and to be to be effective without having any plays run for you. And that's and that's what that's what guys like us had to do back then. You had to go get an offensive rebound. You had to you know run the floor. You had to you know make a make a basket cut because they weren't going to you know they weren't going to run post up plays for me with Elijah and Samson. And so if I was going to make it in this league, I had to I had to be able to run and I had to be able to be tough and rebound. And so that's what, that's what guys like us did. You know, one of the guys I love to compete against and, and you know, very well is, is Otis Thorpe. Otis Thorpe, when he was, when he was in Sacramento, you know, we had a lot of battles, you know what I mean? And Otis was, was, was probably one of those players that they did run a lot of offense through because Otis was a very skilled low post player, but like he was a guy that I had to compete against. And I thought he was kind of that blue collar guy too, you know? Oh, he was, he was, he was blue collar and, there were lots of guys like that that you that 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 we competed against, and and the game was different back then. In some ways, I kind of miss it. You know, I kind of miss the old school power forwards like like a Buck Williams. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, you think about how good Buck was. You know, didn't shoot threes, but was so tough down low, could step out and knock down fifteen footers. You know, another, another one of our Sacramento buddies, Sal Thompson, was like that. But there was, you know, you know. The, the 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 litany of power forwards back in those days, from Carl Malone to to Kevin McHale to Charles Barkley to Tom Chambers, you know the, all the different the different players, you know. Um, sure. 
Barkley was uh, people always asking me who the toughest player was for me to guard, and and I I still say it was, it was well it was two of them. I I could guard McHale. I didn't I didn't mind playing against him. I thought he was, you know I, I you know he's a University of Minnesota guy. He knew his game so well. I just wouldn't let him catch the basketball. But I always said Charles Barkley and Tom Chambers were the two hardest guys for me to guard. Barkley because he could score at any level. He could take the ball off the glass on the defensive end and sprint dribble up the floor like a point guard and with the same speed as a point guard, but yet he's saloon dooring defenders, you know, like, you know, think about a guy going through a saloon door. That's what Charles <laughs> was doing to grown men. Right. Yeah. You know? And so he would sure. just, he would just, he would just saloon door defenders and, and like you got the heck out of his way. Cause he was a freight train and he was almost like a precursor to LeBron James. And you think about LeBron James and how, you know, he, if you've never seen LeBron James play in person, Grant, you can't believe the, the size and speed with which he, you know, brings the ball to the floor. And when he determined, and that's the way Charles was. You, you remember that? Sure, I mean, of like course. Charles Absolutely. Was, Char- like a Charles freight train. Was, and, and so like, but so like if, if, so that was in transition, but in the half court, Charles could face you up on the perimeter and blow past you. Mm-hmm. And if you, if you played off him, he could shoot the three and knock down perimeter jump shots. And then, oh, by the way, he could also, you know, take you into the low block. And because he was so strong, he could go through you and jump over the top of you. Like, you know, people said he was undersized. Charles was not undersized. Charles is a big human being. And he's also, you know, he's not 6'5". Charles is, I think Charles is more like 6'6", six, 6'7". Six, six, you know, anyway, it just, it just you know, like that, like that era. And then Tom Chambers was 6'11". It could jump out of the gym. Like, mm-hmm. Like there, there was so many talent. Like people talk about who could play today from back in that area era. Everybody, all those dudes could play in this era. How how skilled? How how much of a different player would Tom Chambers oh. be in today's game? Let me tell you something. I don't even. He'd be unguardable. I mean, with the way the game's played now, and the way he shot the ball, and the way he did everything else, I don't know if you'd be able to guard the guy. And we can go line and verse. I mean, I, I still think, you know, with Carl Anthony Towns right now, like, you know, just w- watching some of these, and you see Nikola Jokic, and, yep. and you see Joel Embiid. I say the post-up grant is still alive. I, I think, you know, people want to, like, say the post-up game is dead. I think it's dead from the standpoint that coaches don't know how to coach it. I don't think coaches know how to teach footwork anymore. I think that's one of the reasons why Akeem Olajuwon was so – you know, heavily regarded when he, after he stopped playing. Because, like, think about all the players that would go down to Houston to learn from Akeem. Remember, remember those days Absolutely. when everybody was going to Houston? Sure do. To learn? Kobe Bryant did it. Dwight Howard did it. Like, they all went down to kiss the ring because they knew that it was a really valuable tool. And to me, the post-up game is another form of dribble penetration. It's, it's another way to collapse the defense. Like, people want to, like, play draw kick game now, but you know, you you throw the ball into an effective low post player like a Joel Embiid. You got to come double team him, and now you now you're leaving shooters open. So, you know, I don't know. I, I, I it's it, it kind of bothers me that 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 the post up game is kind of like it's going by the wayside. But you're still seeing that if if a team has a, an effective low post player, that it, it's still a, a, a huge, important, powerful chess piece mm-hmm. on the chessboard. Jim, when I talk to Jerry Reynolds about what is, uh, you know, looking back at his career, the, maybe the favorite moments, he, he always brings up the WNBA and the Monarchs and putting that team together. You were very yeah. involved with the Minnesota Lynx as an assistant coach for years. You loved the women's game. What was your favorite part about it? Uh, going to the White House and shaking Barack Obama's hand three times. <laughs> that, was pretty, that was pretty sweet. You know, I, I, I had a chance to coach. I think, well, Cheryl Reeve, the head coach, who's now with the Olympic team, who's in Tokyo with Don Staley coaching our Olympic team, she's, she's going to be in the Hall of Fame. The great Maya Moore, who went undefeated two seasons at Connecticut, and she won four WNBA titles. They, they won one more after I stopped coaching in 2016. They won, well, they won their fourth, the Lynx won their fourth championship in 2017. But Maya, you know, Maya has this incredible resume. Lindsay Whalen, also Simone Augustus, Sylvia Fowles, the, the women that helped make our team so good. Rebecca Brunson, who sure. you know, we got we got in the dispersal draft when, when the monarchs were folded up. 
we got Rebecca Brunson, who was such a very important player to the championship they won there in Sacramento for Jerry Reynolds. We, we don't become champions without Brunson. And so it gave me perspective. I didn't really know that much about the women's game before I started coaching. And then once I got fully immersed in it, I started watching the college game because, you know, when you're doing preparing for the draft, you see you have to go through and look at, you know, all the talent that's in the draft, the draft pool. And, you know, you start watching the college game. And, and so you start game planning against these women and you, and you see how talented they are. And yeah, it, it, it did, it did a real number on me in terms of like respecting what they do. And the other thing, Grant, is that these, these WNBA players, they play year round. So they, they play in the WNBA in the summertime, but then when the season's over, they go to China and the Czech Republic and Russia and Spain and Israel and they and they go play seven months overseas, and they play five months here in the United States, and they dovetail season after season after season. And when I think about like all the injuries that I saw these women play through and with, it, I was like, I was like, guys think they're all tough, but these women are way mm. tougher. I, I I just saw I saw Lindsey Whalen. We're we're playing. This is in in 2011. We we win our first championship against the Atlanta Dream. And Lindsey Whalen, we won that we won it was the best of five, right, in the finals. And so we're in the locker room in Atlanta. We had just won the third game, so we won in three games. And I, and we're I'm sitting in the locker room with Lindsey Whalen and she confides in me that if there had been a game four, she couldn't have played because she had bone spurs in her ankle. Mm. So bad, Grant, that she could not have played in game four. How about that? But yeah, wow. she, she yeah, but she played in games one, two, and three in that kind of pain. And I just, you know, these guys say, you know, load management and all that kind of stuff. That, that's that's just not something that these women think about. Because, no. you know, you, you, you make a hundred grand playing in the WNBA, but then you make 800 grand playing over in Europe. What do you do? You make your name in the WNBA, but you got to make your money over there. So they end up playing your round. I just had so much respect for those women. Mm. And I think that's one of the things that Jerry probably appreciates too, is the toughness and the skill with which these women play. When I watch NBA basketball, I think you are truly one of the best uh, analysts in the league. You started in radio as an analyst before you moved uh, to TV. Uh, and I'm just curious, did did that come easy for you, broadcasting? And at what point, post-playing, did broadcasting even enter your mind? You know, it's funny. I, you know, I when I finished playing with the Warriors in '92, some people had some people had asked me about doing it, and I really didn't think I wanted to do that. So I left the Bay Area, moved to San Diego for three years, kind of did the beach thing, and was trying to figure out what I wanted to do. I worked for the NBA Players Association for a couple of years. We did seminars in the locker rooms for financial planning and degree completion and life after basketball which was a very important program. The, the NBA Players Association did a great job of, of trying to get guys prepared for life after basketball. So I did some of that with the NBA Players Association. And it wasn't until I came back to Minnesota that, that uh, you know, I was kind of trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And, um, you know, the Wolves came to me and asked me if I wanted to be the, the radio analyst. And I was like, you know, I, I think it sounds like a, like an interesting thing. I was going to get to work with a guy named Chad Hartman. Chad's father, Sid Hartman, sure. is an icon in Minnesota. Legend. Sid just recently, Sid just recently passed away at, at the age of a hundred. And Sid was a longtime, you know, sports columnist here that, that pretty much everybody knows. If you Google Sid Hartman, oh, sure. you know, the best. And, and of course, you know who he is, Grant. But but anyway, so so it's it's his son, Chad. Who I who I knew and I was I was familiar with, but I really didn't know him as a friend at that time. Chad Chad was going to be my broadcast partner, so we did like a mock broadcast where we like took it off like a video a video of an old game, and we just kind of called the game, and we we hit it off. And so you know, I really I turned down the first offers from the Bay Area when I was playing for the Warriors, and then when it took me coming back to Minnesota to do radio, and radio is a little easier, like a call, I think, than it is on TV. Uh, I think TV, obviously you were the star of the show a lot because of your great call. Like you you have such great energy and whatever analyst you worked with, whether it was Jerry or Doug Christie or whatever, you were very giving in that way that you would set your, your, your 
analyst up, but you were as much a star as the analyst. I think the analyst is more of the star during the game, but the play-by-play guy gives you like the, the texture on TV on radio. The play-by-play guy is the star. There's no hand. It's it, there's no, no question. hands or butts about that. Yep. You know, Gary Gerald, you know, in Sacramento, all those years, what G man, what a great, what a great man. And, and that's and that's why radio guys can work by themselves because they are stars. They're incredible. They're incredible tacticians, and they they bring like life to the game by themselves. And so, as an analyst, I mean, rule of thumb for an analyst in radio is that my time is from when the ball goes through the net on a make, and when the guard crosses half court with the basketball. That's yep. my time yep. to get in, get out. And you know, one of the things that that Hubie Brown. Hubie Brown told me was that he said, you know, anybody can talk, but can you communicate? And I always, I always remembered that, you know, it's like anybody can just say stuff, but, but can you really communicate? And so like the challenge for me as a radio analyst was to be able to to really communicate something from when the ball is inbounded (laughs) until it crosses half court, you got Mm -hmm. about what Grant five seconds. Yep. Six seconds. Yep. So could you communicate something quickly so that the play-by-play guy can get, you know, the vision back onto the court, like what's going on out there. And so I had to, I had to be able to learn how to, how to get points in quickly. And, and that was, that was a really good sort of like learning experience. I, I always felt number one, leave your ego at the door. Number two, chemistry is what it's all about. And yep. I used to spend so much time when Doug was starting out, I used to go out to dinner with him every single night on the road. We played golf together. I wanted yep. to become almost like one with him. Now, Jerry, to me, and this develops over time, as you well know, almost became like a family member to me. I knew what Jerry was going to say before he said it and vice versa. And you know where I'm coming from because you've worked so long now with Dave and it was the same way with Tom Henneman. When you have, when you have that type of chemistry – right? Then that makes your job and your life so much easier because you really do know what the other's going to say. And you also know what the other is thinking all the time. It's very true. And it's one of the things that's going to make this, this job different. And the pandemic changed everything about how we did games. So in Minnesota, I don't know. I, I, I think everything was kind of similar for everybody in Minnesota. We did the home games from inside target center, but we were at the top of the world pole. We weren't courtside anymore. And, you know, a lot of, a lot of teams are moving broadcasters up off of the floor because, because obviously the real estate on the floors is very lucrative for the team. So they want to get that real estate back so they can sell seats and sell courtside seats. And I get it, you know, but having broadcasters on the floor, we bring way more, I think in terms of like the texture of the game, like understanding, like being able to communicate with the referees. It's I mean, like we literally can talk. We can talk to the referees during yep. the game. It's invaluable. I can't tell you how many times we take yes. our headsets off. Me too. You know, well, sure. We, we just call them over and we ask them a question. Yes. Like, what's going on? And being able to to be able to see both benches and being able to like like see what's going on. You know, like it, it's 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 part of what brings us our credibility as broadcasters. And then now with the pandemic, we we had to do it from the top of the lower bowl, which you know, it's, it's fine, but it's not the same. And then on the road games, we brought it, we broadcasted road games from our um, Lexus courtside club. Like it was like they, they weren't using the club during the pandemic because we didn't have fans in the arena. Mm-hmm. So during the, during the entire season, we were back doing road games from this remote, like inside the target center Lexus club um, premium seat area that, you know, and we're looking at TV monitors and so, you know, what you're saying, like how you build chemistry as a, as a broadcast team, um, you build it by being on the road with your producer and director and, yep. you know, Amen. Um, your crew. You're, so you build chemistry with your crew, the people that are they're in the truck, you know, pushing the buttons and making the, the, the show happen. And so, you know, you, you, you get intel with the team, you're flying on the team playing, you know what's going on. And so if you take that away, it's going to be a different job. Will the fans will the fans know and maybe be able to tell? I, I don't know. The the more sophisticated fans probably will be able to tell because it's just going to be a different thing. But 
I just think if you start c- cutting corners like that, Grant's going to be a different job and you're going to get a different product. Hard to believe that we've known each other for half our lives, 30 years, man. And you know you're one of my favorites and you're one of the guys uh, – I, I'm truly going to miss not being on the circuit anymore. Uh, I can't thank you enough for you know reminiscing and a really good message about heart disease and don't wait. I mean, don't wait. Don't worry about ego. Don't worry about being embarrassed. Don't worry about an ambulance pulling up in front of your place. It can save. Yeah. It can save your life. And I I love that message. I wish you nothing but the best. And listen, I really do hope that our paths uh, cross again. You know how much I love you and how much respect I have for you. You you were when I was traded from Houston to Sacramento. It was your first year broadcasting, so I you know you knew me as a player in Sacramento, and you were always so kind to me. And throughout my broadcasting, when I first started broadcasting, and you and Jerry Jerry Reynolds was the coach when I played for the Sacramento Kings for that one year. And the I don't know Grant, you know it's like when the kindness that you you always showed me and Tom and me and Dave and like just like for me in particular you and Jerry. You guys are like family and dear friends to me, so I, I will always be grateful to you and all you've done for me and continued success and, and blessings to you and your family. All right, let's move along to our Crowd Ultra Q&A. Just go to CrowdUltra.com, sign up, and maybe I'll answer your question right here on my podcast. Jason wants to know, I'd love to hear your take on Simone Biles quitting the women's team final because of mental health. My first question is, how do you define mental health. What is mental health? Because to me, there are a lot of different aspects when it comes to mental health. Am I a doctor? No, but I'm using common sense here. I can't walk in Simone Biles' shoes. I know she's been through a lot in her life, and I would have no idea what it would be like to have that type of pressure and expectations put on top of me. So I'm not going to really comment on Biles' Particularly, what I am going to say is, what about the mom and dad or mom or dad or aunt or uncle who has had to work two and three jobs or lost their job due to the pandemic and they're trying to put food on the table for their families? What about our elderly who really were alone for so many months during the pandemic? What about their mental health? Does anyone care about them are we only going to really focus in on our celebrities in this country when it comes to mental health what about your neighbor what about your family member what about a friend or a friend's significant other what about their mental health so again i sympathize with anyone that is going through a tough time but here's what i do know about Simone Biles. She has every single thing that she could possibly need right at her feet. In other words, if she has to go see the best mental health doctors in the world, she can do so, okay? Money would not be an issue. Doesn't mean that she's going to be happy, but the point is everything is right there at her disposal. What about that mom or dad or that elderly person or as I made other examples, what do they do when they have real mental health issues. Who's going to help them? And who's sympathizing with them? That's the part that bothers me here. It is a complete, in my opinion, overreaction because Simone Biles is a well-known athlete. And again, I'm not saying I don't sympathize with her. What I am saying is, what about other people that have as many and if not more serious issues. Who's taking care of them? Who's sympathizing with them? You know, that's the big issue that I have here. It's a really good question. It's not an easy answer. It's not something that can be answered in two or three minutes like here on a podcast. Uh, It also needs to be addressed by mental health experts. But again, I'm going to go back to what I said initially. How would you define mental health? What does that mean, mental health? That's where I would start. Very good question. All right. Uh, Alan wants to know, do I like the new rule changes for fouls in the NBA? Yes, I do. I think offensive players initiate fouls way 
too often. Charlie asks, are you surprised by the Olympics having a 49% viewership drop compared to 2016 in Rio and a 53% drop compared to 2012 in London? I'm not. I just think there are so many people in this country that are getting turned off by everything going on as it relates to sports. Now, yeah, I know that, you know, Rio's time difference was not that big of a deal uh, and London five hours from the East Coast, eight hours from the West Coast. You know, Tokyo and the time difference does affect the ratings somewhat, but having no fans, no ambiance uh, in these venues. And again, I just think there are those that are, are really turned off when it comes to sports right now based on everything that's been discussed here uh, on these platforms. Again, that's just my opinion. I could be wrong there. All right, Christian wants to know, has the NFL created division between those in the league who are pro and anti-vax? Yeah, I think they probably have. Yeah. Ricky says, did you see a signed Patrick Mahomes rookie card just sold for a record $4.3 million? I did, and my question is, who the hell would pay that kind of money for a signed rookie card of Patrick Mahomes? You know, I don't really understand that. Jeff asked, what's your take on Charles Barkley saying the only people who are not vaccinated are just a-holes? I think that's a little too strong, but but I, I understand where he's coming from. I mean, I, I really don't understand those that have decided not to get vaccinated. Again, it's their right as an American, but I really am having a difficult time uh, understanding that. All right, Lucas wants to know, could Cole Beasley be cut for his continual comments as it relates to being vaccinated? He could be, but I don't really have a problem with what he has said. I may not agree with it, but the way he's laid it out, I respect him. I don't agree with him not getting vaccinated. I don't agree with his stance, but that's his opinion. So, again, it's a very complicated, very complex uh, decision that everyone has to make, right? Ross wants to know, is it expected hearing Kyle Shanahan say Jimmy Garoppolo is the starter? Yes. Trey Lance has hardly played football. He went to a, a small college. He hasn't played in two years. Yeah, of course Jimmy Garoppolo should be the starter. All right, here's an interesting question from Phil. What do you think the majority of Dodgers players not wanting Trevor Bauer to return means? And should Dodgers fans like myself not expect Trevor Bauer back this season? I don't think you should expect him back. You know, when you read, and these aren't even allegations anymore, he's admitted, and his attorney has admitted, they've admitted to the, I'll just say it this way, deviant sexual behavior, all right? lewd acts because it was consensual here's the problem with all of that and these are just some of the aspects all the players that are married and have significant others they don't want the player they don't want their spouses around Trevor Bauer and his deviant sexual behavior that creates a real rift and and here's the other deal and again you know, to each their own, I'll, I'll leave it at that. But when you read the accounts of what happened between Bauer and the quote-unquote victim, I mean, really? Seriously, really? Do you want that guy around you in your clubhouse? I'm not so sure that I would. So it's a very complex situation because what happens if it's proven that it was 100% consensual? Then what do you do? It's time for Rant. And today's rant is brought to you by the Home Theater Company. For audio, video, and home theater, just go online, hometheatercompany.com. Well, the NBA draft is in the books, and oh, yeah, today is one of my least favorite days of the year where I am bombarded with draft grades, which continues to be the stupidest thing annually in our world of sports media. So I'm having some fun here. I went back to 2015 and I looked at Bleacher Report. Carl Anthony Towns, they gave an A. D'Angelo Russell to the Lakers, A. They said, you don't win without star backcourt play. Very true. And Russell certainly would not get an A if the draft were held all over again today. Philadelphia, Jalil Okafor, A. Years of tanking pays off as star center slips. 
Uh, no. Knicks. Kristaps Porzingis, A. Five, Orlando. Mario Hazonia, B+. <laughs> that would be an F. 2016, CBS Sports. Ben Simmons, Philly, A-. Brandon Ingram, L.A. Lakers, A+. Jalen Brown, Boston, B-. Dragon Bender, Phoenix, A, which would be an F. Chris Dunn, five to Minnesota. That also would be close to an F. All right, I don't want to pick on the Bleacher Report or CBS Sports anymore, so let's go to 2017 in Sports Illustrated. Markel Fultz, Philadelphia, A. <laughs> An A. How about, how about Lonzo Ball, Lakers, A. Jason Tatum, A minus. Uh, you missed that by two. It would be an A+. Plus. How about Josh Jackson of Phoenix, A? That would be a big, fat F. And then De'Aaron Fox, A. Again, just three years, three different media entities showing what a farce and how stupid NBA draft grades are. And think about this. If you can't even get the top five right, how the hell are you going to get 20, 25, 30 right? It is stupid. Stop it with these damn awful draft grades. It's a waste. It's idiotic. And really, I I would think when you go back in time and you look at these reports, to me, it would be embarrassing. Now, hey, I've been wrong, too. I was wrong on Marvin Bagley. But guess what? I didn't give him a draft day grade. What did I say? What do I always say? Call me back in three years. I'll let you know after three years. Right? I don't let you know in five minutes. Give me three years. Enough with these damn stupid draft grades. Absolutely stupid, idiotic, drives me freaking crazy. And that's my rant for today. And that's my podcast for today. Hey, don't forget to check out my video rants as well over on YouTube. My thanks today to Jim Peterson. Really interesting conversation with him, particularly as it relates to heart disease and his advice for so many others. It's always great when you can join us right here on If You Don't Like That with Grant Napier. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.